Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. My second welcome of the morning. Uh, great to have you here. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in a series on everyday spirituality, and today we will get to talk about what it is to practice these words that, that may be complicated or you may not be familiar with, silence, solitude, uh, Sabbath. We're, we're going to tap into just some of the, the need that we have for those things. But to catch you up to speed if you're visiting for the first time, here's the basis for this whole series. This is Paul, this New Testament writer in the first century writing to a church in Rome. So here's what I want you to do, God, helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. The sort of question we've been wrestling with, the problem question of this series has been, how do you take next steps on your journey when life is busy? If you and I are called to follow Jesus, what do we do when we're just busy and burnt out and there's so many things happening? If this premise is true, if the greatest gift you can give to those around you, is the person into which Jesus is transforming you. How do you enter in? How do I enter into becoming that person? Because I would suggest that is the greatest gift you and I can give to people, the, the greatest gift we can give to our marriages, the greatest gift we can give to our friendships, the greatest gift we can give to family life, to our employees, our employer is that person that Jesus is transforming us into. How do we become that person when life is busy and perhaps feels something like this. For those of you that like riding, and let me just say I hate riding, but I have done it at different points. But for those of you who have been riding up a hill, you have that moment where it feels like the pedals are beginning to slow. And what you desperately need is a shift of gear. You desperately need to be able to shift into a higher gear or a lower gear, however you phrase that. But you need it to become easier. And, and, and sometimes in life, that's not as simple as it might be when you're cycling. Sometimes we get into those rhythms where we just feel like my pedals are slowly slowing down and eventually I'm going to lose all momentum and, and really something, something feels like it has to change. We've talked throughout the series about changing some of the smaller things, about doing new practices, adding them to our routines. We've talked about taking some of the everyday things we have to do, like eating and using those to think about spirituality. All those are good, but, but what about those moments where we might start to say the macro rhythm feels off, just the whole balance feels a little bit off. This is Jesus' invitation, his compelling invitation to us, to what following him should, should feel like. And I use the word feel intentionally. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the message version, a more modern English interpretation, it would say this, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced 
rhythms of grace. Doesn't that sound like a compelling, beautiful thing to be invited into? I hear that, I'm like, yes, I want those unforced rhythms. Show me how to live that way in a way that won't feel like the pedals are about to stop and I'm about to topple over onto the ground. Jesus, teach me how it is to live a rhythm of life that is healthy. The invitation of these two weeks has been to rediscover a healthy rhythm of life. And whether you realize it or not, whether I realize it or not, you have a rhythm of life. It may not have been intentional, may have been accidental, may have just, you may have landed on it, maybe good, maybe bad, but you and I have a way of living where we balance different elements of our life and it's there and we get to choose whether we do it intentionally or accidentally. A rhythm is a certainty. The question we might ask is, is it healthy? And then how is Jesus calling you to shape yours and me to shape mine? Maybe, maybe the first simple point is just that maybe you take a survey of that rhythm of life and just ask yourself, what does it feel like right now to live this life? Does it feel exhausting? Does it feel like I can't keep going much longer? Does it feel like I'm coming to an end of just this ability to just keep pushing the pedals harder in the hope that the momentum just keeps going. Last week we spent some time in this fascinating book, uh, Ecclesiastes. We're introduced to this character, the teacher, the coaleth, the preacher, uh, a guy called Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, and he tells us, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. The word meaningless is this word, habel, which quite literally might mean Vapor, and I delightedly, like a small child, sprang all over the st stage pretending to spray cats off counters and all those different things. And, and this is vapor, this stuff that disappears that we can't hold on to. And yet, according to this writer, we try to. According to this writer, we try to gather it to ourselves. We try to almost, almost harvest it almost curated, almost manage it. He, in chapter 4, says, And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless and chasing after the wind, the vapor. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. And he says, don't do that. Don't just do nothing. But better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. We are inclined. We tend to chase after this stuff, to want to keep it. And he doesn't judge it, doesn't say it's good or bad, just observes that you can't necessarily control it. You can't hold on to it. And if you get caught up in chasing it, if that becomes your obsession, it ends up being deeply disappointing. It's the definition of meaningless. We're invited, I would suggest, based on this, to rediscover a rhythm of, of what it is to work, rest, and play. We talked last week about play. We talked about how Jesus enters into things that maybe he's so busy we think he wouldn't have time for. He goes to weddings and spends whole days there. He even extends them, prolongs them. He doesn't seem as rushed to work, work, work as we might think someone might be who was here to save the world. He pauses and takes time for fun. And today we get to look at rest. But really this whole rhythm is an invitation into something that I would say looks like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. An actual translation of restores my soul could be something like he returns me to my breathing. 
You know that feeling you have where your breathing is out of whack, where you're trying to, trying to control it and, and you're kind of gasping for air? No, no, this rhythm returns you to your right breathing. If you've ever tried to comfort a small child who's desperately trying almost to scream and almost getting their breath stuck inside the lungs, and, and what do you say to them? You say, take a deep breath. Slow it down. It's going to be okay. This is Psalm 23. This is this invitation to be restored, to find what it is to lie by green pastures. This requires taking time that is, con- that is determinedly unproductive, that isn't about achieving. We're, we're tempted to do the Ecclesiastes thing, to chase that vapor, to try and harness it, to get more, produce more, make sure we have more, gather more stuff, perhaps keep up with the Joneses, all of those different things. And yet the, some of the practices we might be called to are intentionally not that Last week we looked at this idea that play, just fun, is an economically unproductive activity. There is no marketable product. It's out with the laws of patents and copyright. It cannot be easily commodified. It's a skill without monetary value. And above all, it's an activity requiring leisure, the sort of time that isn't money, isn't about producing more, isn't about production. Maybe the second thing we would talk about today is, yes, take a survey of your life rhythm, but then take a note of your work-rest balance. Because work and rest are intrinsically related to each other, right? They're they're both good things. The, The Bible and the writers of Scripture, they talk about both of them as positive things. And yet I would suggest probably, in this room we could split into two camps, there's probably those of us that love rest and find work to be a bit of an imposition on us. And then there's some of us that love work, and we find rest to be an imposition on us. Some of us could sit all day, and actually having to work is a difficult thing. Some of us, well, some of us were the opposite to that. And yet, what we kind of tapped into last week is that that perhaps as a nation, we have a problem with overwork, with doing too much, with that Ecclesiastes things of gathering and gathering so we can harvest more and more and we can have more stuff. A few fun quotes for you around this. This is Wayne Mueller in this book, Sabbath. And if, as we talk about Sabbath, something springs up to you and you say, I'd love to grasp more about Sabbath, this book is one of those ones that will make you laugh, make you weep as you enter into it. But, but he says, a successful life has become a violent exercise. You have to bring the violence and energy to make sure that you get more than everybody else, that you do more than anybody else, that you climb the ladder quicker. Thomas Merton says this, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. It destroys the fruitfulness of your own work. Alex Suyung Kimpanga, Silicon Valley executive who's now written books on rest said this, with a few notable exceptions, today's leaders treat overwork and stress as a badge of honor. Brag about how little they sleep and how few vacation days they take and have their reputation as workaholics carefully tended by publicists and PR firms. He talks about how for the first time maybe in history we actually celebrate overwork as a positive thing in a nation we champion it and and talk about it as having value he talked about the number of executives he'd come across who would set their emails to go out at two o'clock in the morning even if they wrote them at seven o'clock in the evening so people would think they were working when everybody else was asleep or doing something far more fun 
We have a problem with that demand and that need to capture more. It's deeply imbibed in our culture. And yet at the same time, we are people that are deeply tired and become aware of it maybe only when problems arise. There are these moments that become life-changing moments where you maybe realize for the first time just how tired you are. Wayne Mueller talks about the number of people he's counseled in his work as a pastor. He's heard stories and walked with them through sickness. And as he's walked with people through cancer, through AIDS, one of the things he said was fascinating is, yes, there was sadness. Yes, there was fear, all these different concerns. But often what he would hear is in those moments, at least I can rest now. Now that this has happened, at least, at least I feel I can stop. I had a similar story. About a year ago, I ended up in a hospital with a gallbladder problem. I had to have it removed. And, and I remember that moment of sitting there. And for the first time, my body wasn't functioning as I wanted to. And for the first time, they took one of these things and they, um, they put it around my wrist and they did the IV thing. They jabbed me with all that stuff. And I, I remember having some concerns, but for the most part, not really feeling very worried. Maybe it was the morphine that I was on that was taking away the fears. But there was definitely this moment of, for the first time in a long time, nobody's expecting me to do anything. I feel like I can stop. I feel like I can rest. There are no expectations. And I just wonder whether I've forgotten what it is to rest whether I don't know how to do that well anymore. Perhaps you've had that feeling of being sat in your living room looking out into the street and you see your neighbors hard at work on their lawns or yards or houses and suddenly something rises inside you of, I, I should really be out there too. And the question is, should you? Should you really? Or is that just something that our society has taught us to be true? We should constantly be doing more. We have a struggle with work, rest, balance. We lean so much towards work. And yet there's this deep desire that we have somewhere to find true rest. Fortunately for us, the Jewish faith and then the Christian faith after it is inherently based around this beautiful idea of this day, this wonderful gift of a day called Sabbath. Right in the beginning we read in Genesis 2, by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work that he had done. The God of the universe with infinite capacity, infinite energy, stopped and didn't work. Not because he couldn't work, but he chose not to work. In, Exodus, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we read, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you six days. You shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Sabbath is an invitation into a faith statement, into a trust statement. In Sabbath, we rest ourselves and we believe this. Your world will survive without you for a day. All of the things that you manage, operate, do, all of the vapor that you gather, that you curate, that you harvest, it will manage without you for a day. That can feel very hard to believe in a culture that values 
production. And yet this is the statement that we're invited to make. No, the world will be okay without me for a day. There's a few things I'd love to pull out, a few things I'd love to highlight around Sabbath, a few things that I think I miss. Firstly, this Sabbath is a commandment. It's an instruction that requires faithful obedience. Up there with do not murder, as in when you are with people, make sure they're still breathing when you leave, and do not steal, as in when you like other people's stuff, don't just take it from them. Up there with those big seminal commandments that we obey instinctively, it is rest on Sabbath. Take a day and stop. Somewhere those things are equivalent with one no less important than the other. Firstly, Sabbath is the, this beautiful commandment just to stop. Uh, Sabbath is the fir- in the first instance is not about worship. Now let me unpack that just a second because for some of you maybe you're already getting highs because you remember growing up in a culture that said uh, Sabbath is for church and it was boring, and you weren't allowed to do anything fun, and you just had to sit while your parents napped or something like that. And now, doing my job, I know the beauty of Sunday naps in a way that I never did when I was a child. I didn't appreciate them. I was so foolish. So many years wasted. But, but, but perhaps you hear Sabbath is about just coming to church, or Sabbath is about just doing nothing. But, but worship is this concept of it's about it's, it's more than just singing. It's about work stoppage. It is about withdrawal from the anxiety system of Pharaoh, the refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption and the endless pursuit of private well-being. When we choose to stop for one day, we say it's not about how much I can gather or how much I can amass. And my value is not determined by how much stuff I have. We make a statement that is countercultural to everything society teaches us. It is about primarily, it's about just stopping. We don't have to produce. We don't have to harvest the vapor on that day. In my hometown back in England, there's this big shopping mall, beautiful stores, all of the high-end stores are there. And one of the stores is this one, the Entertainer. It's a toy store for kids. But it happens to be owned by a, a follower of Jesus. And, and when they opened the store, they said to him, well, you have to be open every day of the week. And he said, I don't have to be open every day of the week. And they said, well, you'll get fined every week you're not open on Sunday. And he said, I'll pay the fine every week for not being open on Sunday. And then there came this moment, this almost test case for the first time in six years. Sunday fell, Christmas Eve fell on a Sunday. And there was this moment where people started to say to him, well, what does that mean for you? Because now Sunday happens to be the biggest shopping day of the year. You'll make more money on this day than any other week. Not just day, but any other week in the year. Surely now you'll be open on Sunday. And he said this, well, what's the difference? The principle is a day of rest. A good number of the staff from now until Christmas may well be working six days a week and long days. They have given their all and they need a break. And on a seven-day cycle, that's what Sundays are. This was a man who saw a value in that, and so primarily Sunday is about giving people rest, about work stoppage, and not about production. It just so happened that that year was the year that the stores made their most profits. He opened 20 other stores in different parts of the country and, and has never really looked backwards, but he stood for a principle. And I've heard some of your stories, or some of you have talked to me about decisions you've made around business or family life that, that aren't about money. 
and looking back, you, you say things like, and I have no regrets whatsoever, or God blessed me anyway, all of those different pieces of language. And yet for some of us, choosing to commit to Sabbath will mean there are losses and are sacrifices. And sometimes 20 stores won't get opened. And sometimes it won't be the best financial year. But it might be a decision we're called to make anyway. Sabbath is a principle. It's a commandment. But Sabbath is also gift. It is a rare perk in a world of graceless, demanding religion that allows for no rest. Do you know how many nations or religious groups did Sabbath in the ancient Near East when this was introduced? Zero. Sabbath was a standalone, new, brand new concept that was unique to this group of people, Israel. They were the only ones that said, we don't gather every day of the week. It was a unique concept that they were invited into. Rest was this gift to them. There's this fascinating passage in Exodus chapter 16 that centers around food, but also around this idea of Sabbath. The people are in the wilderness, in a desert, and they need food. There's not easy access to material goods, and so God provides for them. He provides for them through this stuff, this bread-like substance that lands on the ground, and look how they go about collecting it. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left and keep it uh, until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots. In, in the other days when they tried to gather more than they needed, it went bad. It wasn't usable the next day. They had to throw it away. But this time, when the Sabbath is the next day, it doesn't go bad. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you had to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. It seems that this was supplied just for six days and, and it was given on the seventh day as grace. No strings attached. It was a gift, a beautiful gift. Sabbath is a commandment. It is also a gift that we are given this privilege that we are asked to enter into. On the seventh day, you don't need to gather. You don't need to harvest. Take a break and even if you try, there won't be anything there. You can't gather any more vapor on the seventh day. Sabbath is commandment. Sabbath is gift. But Sabbath is fragile and gentle. And like so many fragile and gentle things, it easily gets sacrificed in favor of more production and more stuff and more achievement. Even in this story we just read, the story continues this way. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. So the people rested on the seventh day. For some people, there was this hope, this dream of, could we just gather a little bit more? Imagine if we had some to put away for retirement. Imagine if the savings account was padded. Imagine if there was just more and we could keep up with the neighbors and all those different things. Why not just go out on the seventh day, and yet it seems that they found nothing. And so the people learned to rest on the seventh day. It easily, it's, it's fragile, it's, it's gentle, it easily gets sacrificed for production, or, 
all for the thing we touched on earlier, all for the dreary legalism. The Sundays of boredom, the Sundays where nothing was allowed. I have this distinct memory of this elder who delighted, it seemed, in grabbing us kids on Sunday morning and reminding us that we shouldn't run anywhere because it was Sunday and we were in church. As though those, those, those things made sense. And I, I look back and, and think, well, that was your thing? That was your joy, stopping kids running in church? We've seen the way that Sabbath becomes dreary legalism. And, and this is maybe why Jesus speaks into this in, in the passage right after he invites us to unforced rhythms of grace, what we're told is this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and, and almost like children, they began to pick some of the heads of grain and, and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. The religious leaders of the day had figured out 39 different things that you weren't allowed to do on a, on a Saturday, and this was one of them. And they invite Jesus into this conversation and, and he gives them a couple of historical examples of why this might be okay, but really his argument seems to be the Son of Man, him, is Lord of the Sabbath. I get to decide what's okay and what's not okay. And then he gives them this super important lesson. Remember the Sabbath? You weren't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for you. Sabbath was what you needed and it was provided for you and it's, it's designed for you. You don't keep it to honor it. You, you do it because it's good for you. It's gifted to you. God made you the way you are and you need rest and I need rest and there has to be a pause. What I love about what Jesus presents is just how flexible it makes this thing. One rabbi writing around this time, he said when he thought about Sabbath, this was the question he asked. What would pamper my soul? What would pamper my soul? What would bring joy and life and rest to me? Maybe somewhere in Sabbath we're called to identify how you and I experience rest. Because that's different, I would guess, for each of us. What's rest for you as a mother or father chasing kids around all day, running them from activity to activity? What's rest for you who sits in an office all day staring at a computer screen? What's rest for you who goes out to work and comes home smelling terrible but with a mind that's still fresh? What's rest for you in your situation? What pampers your soul? What restores you? What brings you back to life? What is it that you've been given to enter into six days a week? And what on that seventh day, what brings you to life? Sabbath is about restoration. It's about a process that brings us back to life, re-energizes us for this kingdom and allows us to go back into that cycle again. What I love about this presentation of Sabbath is I love the fact that, that neither work nor rest are exalted one over the other. It's that they both, they just work together and they just, they just fit. Maybe you and I are called to identify how we experience rest. That, that was different for me when I worked on a golf course. When I worked on a golf course mowing grass all day, I, I did the thing I just talked about. I would come home smelling terrible. And I would come home physically exhausted. And then I would wake up on a Sabbath day and do you know what wasn't Sabbath for me? Mowing the lawn. Going out working the grounds that we've been given was not Sabbath, it was work. Today, on a Sabbath day, 
to mow the lawn, to tend this patch of ground that God has given us to call our own, that is Sabbath, that is joy, that brings me to life. It is rest. You're called and I are called to figure out what is it that brings rest to us? What is it that restores life to us? And then, and this part I think is just so hard and it requires intentionality because somewhere you and I decide, have to decide how we're going to make room for that. Because if Sabbath is fragile and if production is addictive, something is going to come for that day. Something is going to come for that day. And so somewhere there's this thought, there's this idea that we have to figure out how do we mark it off? How do we fight for it? How do we claim it for the gift that it's supposed to be? I was reading one story about a person who had this practice of doing a meal as is traditional on the the night before Sabbath because in Jewish tradition, Sabbath would begin on the Friday night at sundown and and so often they would mark it by gathering together with friends and this person said, you know what I do? I've built a box. I call it my Sabbath box and I put into it everything, everything that wants my attention and all the things that say that they have to be done and all of the things that the world has for me that says, no, you can't leave your world for a day. And I put them in there and I close it off and I gather with friends over food and I light a candle. And in that moment, there's this practice where I say, whatever is not done, will now not get done. It's okay. The world will continue. It will be all right without me. And I mark it as my own. I mark it as this gift that it is. But I don't know if you're like me. I struggle with no. And there are so many things to do. And so many kids to take all sorts of different places. And so many activities to enter into. And so much work. And to mark off Sabbath is a challenge and a test because things regularly come for that day. We are called to take this gift and and called to figure out how to make it our own, make it the restorative thing that it's supposed to be. But here's a couple of practices really quick that I would like to invite you into. Take Sabbath and take a day to, to know that the world will continue without you, but find solitude. Choose to remove yourself from everything going on around you. We're told Jesus got up very early in the morning. While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Michael Harris says this, we have created an ecosystem of obsessive connection. Many of us now, now lead lives a strangely crowded isolation. We are always linked, but only shallowly so. We need space to escape, need space to be by ourselves. I love this TV show, um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It's about the lives of affluent Jewish people in the 50s and 60s. And and we used to live by this area called the Catskills where these Jewish families would escape for the summer. They would leave the heat of the city. They would leave the exhaustion of work and they would go as whole communities and just exist in this different place. And, And so there were all these incredible resorts that sprung up there. But then as the city, New York, city got air conditioning as it got uh, people got acclimatized to living in America as air travel became cheaper people stopped going and and now the resorts look like this same picture right you've got one and then you've got the other and when I, when I watched what it spoke to me of was this it, it spoke to me of what happens to my soul without solitude without escape without that space 
to be. Somewhere there's a, a dilapidation, there's a breakdown of who I am when I don't find time to be just by myself. If Sabbath is this declaration, this faith statement, that the world will be okay without you for a day, solitude may be equally challenging as this. It's a faith statement that your people can manage without you for an hour. The people can manage without you for an hour. The world will not stop because you take an hour. And that for me took ages to learn. That I could turn to Laura and the kids and say, no, I need some space just to be. I love doing stuff with my kids and that's why I talk about them so much. And I would have these moments where I would say, I'm going for a walk, I'm looking for solitude, I'm looking for that space where God might speak. And, and one of my beautiful daughters would say, can we come with you on that walk? And it took everything in me to say, no, you can't come on this walk because I need that space and I need to mark it off as my own. It's a statement, a belief that your people can manage without you for an hour. And then perhaps in the midst of that, in that midst of that day of Sabbath, where we believe that our world will survive without us for a day, and the midst of that hour where we believe that people will survive without us for an hour, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's this invitation to silence where we get to realign ourselves with the God of the universe. Silence is an underrated thing, I think, at times. It's hard to do, hard to enter into. In, in 1992, the Super Bowl had the, the worst halftime show ever created. 22 million people turned off over halftime, which, if you're a TV producer, apparently is a bad thing. Nobody wants that to happen. And so the next year, they said that we have to, to re-up this. We have to figure out a way to make this halftime show work. So they went and hired Michael Jackson to do the halftime show. At the time, the best-known performer in the world and he begins his show with this moment where suddenly he appears on top of one of the jumbotrons and then suddenly magically appears on the other side of the stadium on top of a different jumbotron and then he explodes from out of the stage like six feet into the air. I've asked every church I've ever worked in, can I do that at some event? Can I just spring gun? There's like, no, it's, it's, it's not the right tone. It's not the right message. But, but he does this thing where he lands on stage and then does nothing stands there for two minutes, just wasting time, just dead air. The one thing TV producers tell you, you do not do. There is nothing there, just silence. Somehow, instinctively, he knows that in 30 years, no one will remember the set list. No one will remember what he sang, but they will remember someone standing on stage in the biggest TV event of the year and doing nothing. When Tiger Woods won the Masters after not winning anything for years, Jim Nance, the sports commentator, just kept silent. He said that he'd been taught by one of his mentors to use silence as a weapon. And he said there was nothing you could do to add to that moment. You could only ruin it. Sometimes we fill silence with simply words. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I find solitude. I find space to be with God. And then I just use the time to put words out, just to speak and constantly talk, to constantly ask God for things, for, to, to sometimes rehash old arguments, old offenses, old things that I'm annoyed with. I spend my time processing, allowing the wheels to churn as I tell God everything I think that he needs to know in that moment. And yet somewhere perhaps the invitation to Sabbath and to solitude is then to add silence 
to it. In 1 Kings 19, there's this story about a, a non-riding prophet called Elijah. He is, had a great victory and is now running away out of fear of, for his life. And he stops at a mountain and we're told this, a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. The Hebrew language is qual damama de qua. A sound of a gentle whisper is a good translation, but maybe we might understand it as there was space to listen. A space where for the first time in the story, Elijah isn't the center of what's going on. His voice isn't the most important thing. Where finally, he's not moving, he's not speaking. He just sits and he just waits and in that moment, in that silence, in that solitude, that's where God speaks to him. The writer Brennan Manning said, the hour you spend in the prayer room is when you refocus, recenter on Jesus, becoming fully aware of his presence once again. When this happens, you can carry God's presence with you into the other 23 hours of the day, knowing all that time he is with you. He is for you. He likes you. And he hears your thoughts. At times it's hard, perhaps the hardest challenge for me is to believe that God likes me. Loves me is one thing, but likes, finds me interesting, finds all my personality quirks that I have to deal with every day and I spend all day with myself, it's terrible. Just as bad as you would imagine and, and, and yet somewhere we're told in that moment we can learn that God likes us and is with us. If in Sabbath we're invited to remember that the world can survive without us for a day and in solitude we're invited to remind us that people can manage without us for an hour, maybe in silence we're asked to believe that you can manage without you for a minute. That all of the churning and the wheels that turn and the ways that you have to figure out the world and, and fix it, maybe in silence we're invited just to stop, just to stop wrestling with it to let it be, to believe that somehow the God of the universe knows and in that moment, maybe he speaks, maybe he gives wisdom. Jesus, it seems, longs for us to find a rhythm that would lead to restoration and maybe we do that through rest, through Sabbath, through removal, uh, through solitude and through this realignment that maybe takes place when we land in silence and we take it seriously. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. Perhaps you have found yourself to be in that time of life where it just feels busy and there's so much stuff and what you long for more than anything is rest and restoration that comes with it. As we move towards the end of the service, we're going to take this idea of Sabbath and bring it to this thing that we do as a group of followers of Jesus. We gather once a month at this thing we call the table, a communion, Eucharist, Mass, depending on your tradition. It's, it's this place of remembering, but also this place of grace. This place that we recognize just like Sabbath, it is a gift. A gift that we deeply need. A gift that isn't about our production, our producing, our gathering of stuff. It's not about us at all. It's simply about something that has been done for us. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his earliest followers. 
and taking bread, he broke it and handed to them and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and handed it to each of them and said, this is my blood shed for the sins of the world. As long as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. If Sabbath is a moment of remembering that the world will survive, us, survive without us for a day, communion is this moment of remembering it was never dependent on us anyway. We are invited here simply out of grace. The God of the universe loves us, is for our good, and has prepared a table for us. Psalm 23 in this beautiful language goes on to talk about he restores my soul, yes, but he has prepared a table for me. This is the table that has been prepared for you and I. We get to bring to it our doubts and our fears, our hurts, our frustrations, our anger. We get to bring it the storms and we get to find in it not all of the simple answers that we might long for, but we get to find in it this peace brought by the God of the universe who loves us. We come to a table that has been prepared through Jesus and what he has done. In a moment, I'm going to invite us to that minute of silence. I'm going to invite us to do the practice I'm going to invite you to do all week. I'm going to invite you and me to believe that the God of the universe still speaks into our deepest needs when we pause and we give him space to do that. After that, Aaron is going to lead us in a song. During that time, you can come and collect the elements. If you'd like to be prayed for, there's people at the front that would happily pray for you too. But first, we're going to bring that moment. We're not going to fix it. We're not going to talk. We're simply going to shut down the engine and believe that the God of the universe will meet us in it. God, as we enter into silence, help us to gather our scattered senses. Help us to quiet our minds that so long to produce and so long to fix. Help us to rest. In that moment, in that minute, would you please speak? Speak into our storms. Speak into our struggles. Into our loneliness. Into our fears. We don't ask you for easy answers, but we ask that you would be present. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.